This is the murderer you know. Alrighty then. Welcome to the murderer you know. Are you there, mom? Hey, hey there. <laughs> I'm so excited to be on the murderer you know. <laughs> I live in fear now that I've... <laughs> that I know all your secret nightmares. <laughs> oh, that is fearful. <laughs> well, I think today I wanted to, not that I wanted to, but it seemed appropriate to stay in this vein of capital murder cases. We've yes. kind of been talking about that. So mom, question for you. When did you move back to the U.S. of A. The back to the U.S.A. of A. Well, I as a married here. woman, <laughs> yes, I moved here in 1979, and I should probably let people know I had not really lived with my family in the United States. I had gone to college, so that was like nine months out of the year at a you know college campus. But before that, the last time I had lived in the United States was in 1967. Mm. So 12 years had passed. And living overseas, you kind of got a very scary impression of what the United States was like. You know, rampant crime, murders. And yeah. I wasn't 100% sure I even wanted to move here. But we did. Because compared to Europe, there was a lot more crime in America. More Even murders. then? Oh, yes, yes. There was a lot more terrorism in Europe, but a lot more, you know, straight up crime here in America. So I wasn't all that excited about moving back here. I mm -hmm. kind of liked living overseas. But my recent husband, you know, had a job and he had to come back to the States for that. So mm -hmm. he came back. And do you remember you were kind of anxious? I mean, were you actually scared about crime and not knowing what to expect? Do you remember the first crime after you moved? I don't really remember the first crime, but I had never liked being alone in, a, you know, a house or apartment by myself. Even Same. in yeah. <laughs> Even when I was a teenager, I didn't like staying in my house by myself. And if my parents went on a trip, I would always con a friend into staying with me. Then after I graduated from college, I did have my own apartment. And I think I felt fairly safe there. I mean, you know, there were other people in the building. But when we moved back to the States, my husband was, was sort of picked to basically be on travel all the time and mm -hmm. so he was gone a lot especially during this time this period you're talking about and yeah I did not like being in the house by myself and I remember I remember one time I was in the house alone and there was a crash in the back bathroom and oh no. yes and I had these two cats who just like startled and looked back there like oh my god like there were 20 murderers climbing in the bathroom window and so I was debating do, do I call the police do I get a knife do I just run out the front door screaming <laughs> me every night <laughs> and so I so I finally I think I went back there like every stupid person in a horror movie who goes down to the basement or, you know, <laughs> so I went back there and I don't know, a, you know, a shelf had fallen off the wall or something, something. It was not a murderer waiting for me, but yeah, I was, I was pretty, I was pretty nervous, but I don't really remember any crimes until this one. I mean, I'm sure there were crimes, but this was one that really terrorized the community. I mean, everybody mm -hmm. was on pins and needles. Well, it's interesting because this was five years after you moved back here and you weren't, when I was researching for this case, you definitely weren't the only person who didn't really notice crimes before this one. 
I mean, I have never known this area of Virginia before these crimes. Obviously, I wasn't born yet, but a lot of the people who were there said that, you know, this southeast area of Virginia at the time had a very small town feel. It was, you know, kind of that place bad things don't happen here. Violent crimes don't happen here. Yeah. Break-ins, robberies, but nothing of this magnitude. And it's just interesting because I think I would say quite a few people think of this area of Virginia as being kind of dangerous now. So it was interesting to read of it being this like idyllic little community where everyone knew each other and everyone felt very safe. I mean, well, I, I don't. I, I'm not sure I would call it an idyllic little community. I mean, there were lots of neighborhoods, and I think people in their own neighborhoods, sure, felt like you know, I live in a good neighborhood. I mm-hmm. live in a, in a nice place. I mean, I lived in a small neighborhood that was the houses. I think had been built in the 50s, sort of about the same time I was built, and <laughs> most of the residents, the homeowners, were the original owners. We were like yeah. the first people who moved into this neighborhood mm-hmm. since since the houses had been built. And, wow. you know, and and things were beginning to turn over because obviously those people were getting a little older. So yeah, I mean, I I felt I felt pretty safe in that neighborhood, except for the time that the cats would always get those looks on their faces. <laughs> That's because cats can see ghosts. Yes. They're and definitely did, not the ones to have if you're trying to remain calm. Yes. And and while I wasn't like, you know, worried about a lot of crime, I did not like the fact that your father was traveling. I think I saw him one weekend a month. Jeez. Yeah. Maybe it was two. But still, you know, we were, you know, well, I guess maybe still newlyweds and yeah, he was he was gone and only saw him four days a month. Maybe it was two weekends, four days a month. <laughs> so he's gone. You are seeing him a couple times a month. It's just you and the cats and you're in this new scary America. <laughs> and how do you kind of remember the crimes unfolding? I mean, before someone was apprehended and all of that happened. How were things unfolding? What details were coming out? How did things seem as someone who lived in the community at that time? Well, I think when the when the first murder took place, I mean, everybody was shocked. But of course, everybody just thought it was a one-off. This poor yeah. woman, she was robbed and oh, how horrible. And then, you know, then when the second one happened and the third one happened, then people were terrified and, and mostly women, women were terrified because all the victims had been single women. And I think during the time that this happened, it was in the winter time. And so by the time I got home from work, it was dark out and mm-hmm. just running from my car to the front door and fumbling to get my key in the lock <laughs> and get inside and put my 12 deadbolts on. Is there yeah. some sort of genetic <laughs> link here to running through dark streets and fumbling <laughs> with the key and being scared when you hear bumps in the night? Or is that just everyone? Because everything you're saying sounds exactly like me. Well, yeah, I th- I think, I don't know. I don't know if there's a genetic component to this or if just <laughs> everybody has that fight or flight instinct going back to caveman times. I'm sure if cavemen heard a weird noise in the back of the cave, they thought, ugh, <laughs> maybe it's a saber-toothed tiger in cave going to eat me. <laughs> so, I mean... I think I think it's a natural reaction. Mm-hmm. But in this case, yes, people were very, very afraid. And I remember your father being upset because he wasn't around and this killer was loose. Mm-hmm. And nobody knew when he would strike next and who he was, what was going on. I mean, the police, probably the first task force ever in that town just 
trying to figure out who this guy was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, spoiler alert, the yes. police did catch this man. I want to, I just have this allegedly burnt into my brain because we've joked about it so many times, but they caught the perpetrator. Let's talk about him, a little bit of his background, and then we'll get into a more detailed version of the story that you were just outlining. And you have such an amazing memory. I can't remember like yesterday. I don't know how you remember all of this stuff from 1984. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. All right. Well, let's get into it. Oh, first, by the way, let me say happy start to the holiday season, if that's your thing. Uh, Happy November 17th, if that's not your thing. But I did just want to say we have a little gift for you guys next week because we don't want to leave you hanging over the holiday. So we're going to post a day early. That way, if you have to make a drive or a flight or just need time away from the fam or it's just a normal week for you, you can still spend a little time with us and hear the second part of this story. And if not, we'll be here for you whenever you get back. But keep your ears and eyes out for an early post next week on the 23rd instead of our normal drop day on Thursday the 24th. So this guy, he was born in 1956 and he had been in and out of correctional facilities since he was 14. He never knew his father and his mother, who was an extremely religious woman, Like, apparently she used to sit outside their house and just like read Bible verses to people and like give out religious advice and offer prayers and those sorts of things. She apparently rarely let him leave the house, which I thought was sort of bizarre. And she died in 1980 when he was 24. Well, she probably didn't want to let him leave the house because she probably knew that was a wicked world out there and yeah, keep him safe at home. It didn't work. Yeah. Who who knew? So in 1974, he was evaluated by a psychiatrist after stealing a car. And yeah, that means he was only 18 at the time and four years into his life of crime, which is really sad. And the doctor concluded he suffered from difficulty in social relations, feelings of insecurity, and dissatisfaction with his own abilities. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia and a moderate mental disability. The following year, he was referred to a psychiatrist for depression, bizarre behavior, suspiciousness, and an inability to function in the home environment. Hmm. In 1981, he married a nurse, and she described him later as a very soft-spoken man who was not violent at all. She said he was a mama's boy and that he liked to cook and clean around the house And that he wasn't perfect, but she didn't know him to be aggressive or dangerous in any way. He sounds like the perfect husband. He likes to cook Cook and clean. clean. (laughs) I know. Like, might I take some of these other bad things for someone who cooks and cleans? (laughs) Just kidding. I wouldn't. (laughs) So he was, I mentioned earlier already, he stole a car. He was a car thief, a lifelong car thief. He was arrested at least seven different times for that crime. And police knew him as someone who would take a car if the keys were left in the ignition or break into a house if the door was unlocked. His own stepdad learned to leave absolutely nothing of value sitting around the house, not even some spare change. And he said that he could steal something in the twinkle of an eye and look at you and swear he didn't do it. In 1981, he was arrested for two counts of burglary and he was paroled in 1983. When he got out, he got a job at McDonald's and was living with a local minister and walking eight miles round trip each day to this part-time job at McDonald's. Wow. Hold That's on a dedication. Second. When did he get married? 1981. Oh. So he was in jail 
in the early days of their marriage probably for most of their marriage but when he got out he didn't move back in with her he did not okay interesting yeah i don't know why he he said he was trying to save up for a better place for them to live but why they weren't living together while he did that i couldn't find anything about maybe maybe she began to realize that just somebody who cooked and cleaned was not the the only thing you want in this bath i don't know well i don't no. think they were super happy even at this time just because of some of the there was a lot in the different reports that i read about him thinking that she had been cheating on him while he was in jail about him feeling very just generally stressed out and dissatisfied with her and with their marriage and apparently some mental health professionals who evaluated him thought that the strained relationship with his wife at least in part contributed to the events that took place that we're about to talk about yeah sounds like he didn't have very good relationships with women or I mean anybody or anybody as far as I could tell so you know he's sort of a lifelong criminal like I said burglaries stealing cars but For whatever reason, things really intensified in late January of 1984. As far as the crimes we're going to discuss in a little bit more detail today, they all started on January 23rd, 1984, around noon, or I guess actually, depending on who you ask and whose story you believe, they may have started on January 16th. So let's talk about the January 16th crime first. Okay. On January 16th, someone broke into a home and just ransacked the place. They dumped canisters of flour, sugar, and coffee all over the kitchen. The burglar also poured cooking oil on the floor and threw eggs and ketchup all over the walls. Hmm. After that, they stole liquor, cash, jewelry, and a 38 caliber revolver from a hall closet at the home and left. Uh, so remember that. <laughs> I will. For later. <laughs> a week later, on January 23rd, investigators were called to a hair care center. That morning, after stealing a car, This guy, as he had done so many times before, decided to go cruising around town in a city near his home. It was about 10 minutes southeast of where he actually lived. He later said when questioned by police that it was on a whim. He had no reason to do anything he was doing. He just decided to steal a car, decided to drive around, and decided to go into this hair care center. The woman inside was a 45-year-old mother of five. She assumed he was a customer and started showing him different hair care products that he could use. In response, he pulled out a 38 caliber revolver and demanded money. She opened the register and placed about $50 into a bag and gave it to him. And he then ordered her to walk to the back of the store as she was crying and begging for her life. As soon as she turned her back to him to walk into the store, he shot her in the back of the head from six feet away. You know, once again, and we've talked about this before, I mean, to to kill somebody for $50. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And you think of all the lives that 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 affected and ruined Mm -hmm. the children. $50. Just. I mean, we've talked about crimes where people, the guy that you worked with killed his spouse. I mean, I don't know. Like I said, I kind of think he didn't do it. But anyway, (laughs) regardless of me. (laughs) That was for what? $200,000. And we thought that was insane. And I don't remember the exact amount of money anymore, but for $50, it's completely mind boggling. And we're assuming that this is the first person that he did have a life of crime, you know, starting at 14, stealing things, stealing cars, breaking into people's houses. But how do you go from that petty crimes, car theft, to just shooting somebody in the back of the head. I don't really know. I mean, I was, I was, 
I was listening to Criminal this morning, some old episodes of Criminal, which is a really interesting podcast. And it's not all about true crime and murder and those sorts of things, but it's about crimes in general. And one of the episodes I was listening to this morning, they were talking about psychopaths and they were talking about, there's like this 20 point test for whether or not you're clinically a psychopath. And one of the points on there that you can score, it's either a zero for you don't have this at all, a one for maybe you do, not clear, a two for definitely you do. And if you get between 30 to 40 points, you are you can be diagnosed <laughs> by a psychologist or a psychiatrist as a psychopath. You are a psychopath. Well, the last point on there was someone who does varying crimes. Hmm which I thought was really interesting. And it really made me think of this case because it did seem to kind of come out of nowhere, but I guess it's also possible that there was sort of an escalation like cars to houses to armed robbery. And it, well, he was doing certainly a lot of different kinds of crime, which like I said, it really struck me when I was listening to that this morning. Well, also, sadly, stealing that weapon, that pistol, yeah, that probably allowed him to escalate as well. Because what was he going to do? Walk into a store and threaten somebody with his fist if they didn't yeah. give him the money? So, yeah, unfortunately, having that weapon changed changed everything. That's a good point. But also, I thought I had read someplace that he... I think when they were asking him about why they why he shot these people and he said he learned in prison not to leave witnesses. He did and, say that. Yes. Yeah, and we have talked about that before how people you know are just willing to kill people just so they don't get caught. Well, and unfortunately one of the reasons that we talked about starting this podcast not that we can change the world with a podcast but prison is not generally or even sometimes reformative, right? You take these people who maybe stole a car and you put them around hardened criminals, murderers, serial killers, depending on their personality. (laughs) I think the serial killers are actually in a separate section. I don't don't know. (laughs) Maybe not always. (laughs) I don't think they get to hang out with the car thieves and, and the the juvenile offenders. I, I think there are. I think they do, more. unless they're in like solitary, which they might not be, right? Unless they did something aggressive. <laughs> Aren't serial killers usually on death row? Yeah. <laughs> and that's not in the general prison population, but except anyway. for now. Well, maybe even now. In Virginia, you're... there is no death row. That's true. But I wonder if they're still, if they take people who are determined to be dangerous or who are sentenced to life in prison if they still keep them separate. But we don't know, something to look into. But yes, I think in some cases, or maybe in all cases, once the the management of prisons was turned over to basically money-making enterprises, mm-hmm. more people got sent to prison and fewer people get get reformed. Yes, that yeah. they really they really need to really need to look at that. Because, I mean, if you're not going to help anybody, you might as well just sentence everybody to life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Back in our story, when the investigator, a detective known for being very tenacious and fearless, arrived to the hair care store and found a body on the floor and the cash register open, he said he immediately thought robbery, which I guess seems obvious, but (laughs) was important to him because he was thinking about that burglary of the house that took place on the 16th. Mm. And at the time, there were hundreds of robberies a year in the area, but this one was very different right off the bat because it happened at noon in bright sunlight instead of under the cover of night. And other than this major difference, the detective didn't notice anything unique about the crime initially. So there's, well, one linking feature. Yeah, that's true. I wonder if they were able to 
I don't know, somehow match the bullet to the the gun that was stolen? Mm, not yet, because they didn't know what kind of bullet it was yet. But oh, the well, firearms, of course, not. of course not. Well, the firearms expert who examined the single bullet at the scene, even right off the bat, he warned the detective that he didn't think they had seen the last of whoever this was. Apparently, the firearms expert helped investigate a serial killer in his hometown a few states away. And this crime scene really reminded him of that crime scene from the serial killer he investigated. Hmm. So he was sort of, he had a bad feeling about it from the very beginning. So like okay. you said, for a week, it seemed like it may have been a one-off. Right. But seven days later, on January 30th, 1984, things sort of started getting really crazy. That morning, the presumed assailant left his home and drove to another nearby city about 35 minutes northwest from his home. As he drove, he selected a motel. This, according to him, was on impulse with the apparent intent to rob the inhabitants. While most of the rooms were closed for the slow season, he did find the hotel manager, a 72-year-old woman, in the motel office. She had managed the motel for 25 years. Wow. And when he entered the room, he immediately drew his gun and demanded money. The manager calmly explained to him that it was the slow season and she didn't have much, but she gave him what she did have, which was about $40. While the robbery was taking place, a 43-year-old housekeeper who worked at the motel walked into a connected room and saw what was going on in the office. And unfortunately for her, the assailant also saw her. And he forced her and the manager back into the kitchen area. And once they arrived in the kitchen, he forced them to look away and shot them both in the back of the head at close range. Mm. And this really stuck out to the detectives again, because it was within yards of one of the busiest roads in the city and no one saw anything at all. And at the time, this is still only a weekend officers had nothing to go off of and nothing to connect any of these crimes right so this is probably when you know the first crime it's like oh there was a murder oh that's terrible and now it's suddenly like well wait a minute a week later this is awfully similar to the the first mm -hmm. murder what's going on here so things were yes ramping up yes things were definitely ramping up anxiety level Mm-hmm. The next day, January 31st, our assailant got up really early around 6 a.m. And while driving in his hometown in a different stolen car that he picked up that morning, he happened to drive past an ice cream store and saw a 17-year-old nursing student inside working alone. He pulled off the road and entered the ice cream store. The young woman was cleaning. He pulled out his gun just as he had done at the other crimes and demanded money. He later said that she jumped and was super scared, but she did apparently put between $20 and $35 into a bag and give it to him. And after giving him the money, she sort of backed into a corner in the store and put her arms over her head and face to protect herself. And he watched all of that happen and then shot her in the side of the head through the ear and left. You um, know, this guy was obviously not a master criminal. He goes to these businesses, like first thing in the morning. I mean, mm -hmm. no attempt to hide or be discreet right. or not be seen. It's but like how much money are you going to get? All the, all the, oh, that's, the register, that's a good point. Yeah. All that was in the register was probably the money that you know, you start off the day with like $50 and, and some mm -hmm. change when people come in. So mm -hmm. it's not even like it was about the money. Yeah. He wasn't even trying to knock off a bank or something. He's just, hey, there's somebody in that store. They're, they're by themselves. Yeah. The main detective, even to this day, people have asked him, why do you think this happened? Why did he do this? And he has answered, there is no why. 
this guy, he just did whatever he wanted to. He didn't have a reason. He didn't have a motivation. He just felt like it. He's just chaos. I mean, I think that's true. I think he just was a person with obviously a lot of mental issues, you know, I hate to say low self-esteem, but, you know, he just, he just really had nothing going on in his life. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm so shocked by the, the story of him walking eight miles round trip to McDonald's. You know, I mean, that at least shows some. He was very dedicated to that yeah. job for whatever reason, or just hardworking in general. I don't know him and I couldn't find a lot about him. So it's hard to say, but the cops also were very impressed by that. Yeah. It's like, there's two, there's so many dimensions to this guy and none of it really adds up. It definitely doesn't. Yeah. So now we've had three shootings in the space of what a week, eight days. Yep. And we're on Wednesday, the first There have been three shootings, like you said, four murders in total in just over a week. And the police formed a task force, like you mentioned. (laughs) So officers from all three. I I know about task force from all my watchings of law and order. (laughs) (laughs) Which I am sure is very accurate as we've discussed so many times. So the officers from all three cities where murders had taken place so far, as well as one county in the same area, joined forces with the FBI and the state police. And this very same day, officers had their first break in the case when two stolen cars were discovered. One car contained a wallet that belonged to one of the victims from the motel. And the other car was stolen from the area where the first victim worked at that hair care center. Hmm. So in addition to showing officers that these cases might be linked and they were still kind of working on the forensics in terms of the bullets to see what sort of weapon was used. This also showed officers that a convicted car thief could be involved. Ha. They're starting to stack the. Stack the Legos up. Yeah, they're working in that direction. (laughs) On the same day as these cars turned up, a convicted car thief who was apprehended by police while trespassing told police he had information on the identity of the murderer. And based on this tip, they went to a home in the community where the ice cream shop employee had been killed to speak with a man who lived there with his 79-year-old roommate. Hmm. They didn't notice anything. And in fact, which I've already kind of alluded to, they came away pretty impressed by this guy. He was a convicted car thief who was out on parole, but he was quiet and polite. He didn't seem to have been hardened by his time in prison. In fact, he seemed to them almost reformed and he seemed to be trying to get his life back on track and was walking eight miles each day for his part-time job at McDonald's, which they thought really showed a high level of dedication, especially for a part-time job. And this guy gave the police a very, very vague story about hearing two women discussing one of the cases in a bar and they decided to follow up on that and they left Hmm. interesting yeah wonder why he he threw that in there i mean they were already impressed with the fact that he was walking to work i'm not sure he needed to add something else but you know that's the problem a lot of times with criminals they get kind of full of themselves and it it becomes a game beat the police you know and so they say too much they do too much they show their hand you know yeah if they just shut up (laughs) they might have gotten away with it I guess it's possible he was trying to just give himself some more time you know because Mm. they did spend like dozens of hours investigating this what ended up to be a false lead oh wow So I guess to a certain extent, it might've benefited him a little bit. So finally on February 2nd, our alleged perp 
walked from his home to the first community where he murdered that mother of five who worked at the hair care store. And around noon, he observed a 44-year-old mother of three and candy salesperson. We don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what that is. I feel like that (laughs) hasn't existed for a long time. It's probably one of those old fashioned jobs where I I don't know, who would you sell it to? I don't know. It's interesting how jobs have changed. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. She was leaving a store and getting into her car. So this time he approached her with his gun, getting into her car, pointed it at her and told her that he wanted her money and she needed to get into the car. She screamed and seemed very nervous. And I guess somehow no one heard her screaming, but she did as she was asked and got into the passenger seat of her car with him in the driver's seat. Okay. Time out here, people. I just want to tell all of you, don't get in the car. Don't get in the car. Just remember that. Never. Yeah, but I guess in in this, I don't disagree with you. But I'm sure she thought she was making the best decision. And what were her options? He probably would have shot her. Well, we're assuming she's surrounded by businesses. She couldn't have like zigzagged and run to a door. Yeah, I don't, I don't know either. Off. I, I know you. I'm sure your brain just goes into gridlock and and you just do what you're told to do. Yeah, it's it's easy for us to say now sitting in our houses completely safe. And I, like I said, I don't disagree with you, but I don't know what I would do. Yeah. And he, this, okay, let me just say this part first. He began driving and he ordered her to remove her clothes, which she did. Now, here's what I want to say, because the next thing is the very next line in the appeal document I was reading, just stated as fact. And that document from the appeals court is where I got almost all of the details of the crime. And the thing is, they know all of these details, everything I've said so far, basically, because when he was apprehended, he gave all of these details up with very little resistance. He admitted to killing all of these people. And he said that he forced this woman to take her clothes off because he figured it would make it more difficult for her to escape. He thought she'd be less likely to jump out of the car, for example, I guess, if she was naked. But the cops say, and like I said, this is the part just like stated in the appeal as fact, and I don't know if they had additional evidence to back it up, but they say that he raped her, which he never admitted to. I don't know, it just seems weird. Like he's gonna admit to all five of these murders but not admit to this rape. I mean, I'm not saying if, if, if they say he, he raped her, they had to have had forensic evidence. I mean, just because she was naked, does it automatically say, Oh, she was raped. They'd have to have something. Some, I mean, presumably, but, but also something was not mentioned. Yeah. But you know, Maybe in his mind, rape was just, you know, something his mother would be completely ashamed of. And so he couldn't admit to it. Maybe. Yeah. So this happened in the car. What happened to her after this, this maybe or maybe not rape? He drove to a church after whatever happened. And as she cried and begged for her life, he shot her in the side of the head. And pushed her nude body out of his car into a parking lot behind the church. Actually out of her car. Yes, out of her car. And he stole her car and approximately $40 from her wallet. $40 again. $40. And he decided to spend the afternoon joyriding in this woman's stolen car. And at one point in time, he went to a barber shop owned by a friend where he attempted to sell 36 Almond Joys and Mounds bars for $2 to the people at the barber shop. $2 each or $2 for the I whole box? I think $2 for the whole box. 
Wow. I mean, those candy bars aren't like are barely $2 now. So I'm certain <laughs> it was for all of them. I think that still was they had he, un, he was underselling it although some people would argue Obviously. that those are like two of the worst candy bars of all time so maybe he was just trying to get rid of them <laughs> this poor woman spent her life selling the, the two worst candy bars of all time and I guess apparently the people at the shop agreed that they were the worst candy bars of all time because they rejected his offer and it sounds like a good deal like you said so apparently he then just gave them some candy for free uh-huh. But I guess by this point, from everything I was reading, things were really sort of unraveling for this guy. It was chaos in the community, and he was sort of getting sloppy out here trying to sell this woman's candy bars, driving around in her car. He wasn't making careful decisions. Well, he doesn't sound to me like, you know, the master criminal. Yeah. We're not talking Professor Moriarty here. I mean, this guy... He was lucky he got this far. Yeah. Well, after driving around in this woman's car all day and trying to sell his friends at the barbershop, not only her candy bars, but a pair of women's shoes, he abandoned his last victim's car. But by this time, lots and lots of people had seen him in the car. And around 1 p.m., while the police task force were assembling for their very first joint meeting, they were interrupted by a call that a body was found behind a church with a single gunshot wound to the head. Mm. So, so this, this was, was the, the fifth the fifth woman he killed. Yes. And like you mentioned earlier, this was really the point in time where the detective indicated people lost their minds like after the second murder things got very chaotic but after the fifth the entire area of virginia was in a complete frenzy people weren't leaving their houses it was super shocking and scary especially because like you alluded to all of the victims other than being women they had absolutely nothing in common And it really destroyed that sort of small town feel that people living in this area experienced and appreciated up to this point. There were crazy rumors of bodies everywhere in towns, further away, in schools. The local radio stations even had to make announcements that these were all rumors that no additional bodies had been found to try to sort of calm people down. Yeah, I think it was it was just the randomness of it. Mm-hmm. that you just felt like yeah you could walk out your front door to pick up your newspaper and be shot in the head yeah and I mean especially for the female population I'm sure they were far more terrified because all the victims had been women mm-hmm. and yeah it's pretty pretty awful time if I remember And it just sounds, apparently this sort of mass hysteria was really making it hard for officers to get to the bottom of things, which they were desperately trying to do after five murders, but they had to check. And we've talked about this in some of our other cases, every tip they get, every call that comes in, they have to give it, you know, it's due diligence. They had to check and double check every stray handkerchief, every random abandoned shoe, every call that someone made. Every tip that they received, they were getting 50 calls an hour on their tip line. I'm surprised it wasn't more. I really am. And they were meeting three times a day to exchange information to try to all keep on the same page. And they had been working for 30 hours straight and they were just exhausted, I'm sure. And apparently at midnight on Thursday, after working 30 hours straight, the task force shut down for six hours so the officers could go home, have a home-cooked meal, get a little bit of rest, those sorts of things. The original detective who had been on the case, and I've mentioned him a couple of times, since the hair supply store, he and his supervisor did not take the six-hour break and instead spent the whole night looking for a stolen car, the stolen car, the car of that last woman that might prove their case. But unfortunately, they did not find it. Mm. We also have to remember the time period, especially for the younger listeners like you. You know, people didn't have cell phones. We didn't have amber alerts, you know, Mm -hmm. flashing overhead. So if you saw 
a car that maybe you heard on the radio, oh, this is the suspect car, you know, other than driving someplace and parking your car and going in and saying, can you call the police? You just couldn't get information yeah. to the authorities that quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it almost doesn't feel like it's that long ago in a way, but in terms of things like easy communication, Amber alerts, DNA, like all of that stuff was really a whole world away from what it is now. Yeah. But just, I mean, just even cell phones, just mm-hmm. the ability you're driving down the road. Oh, somebody said a white car with a license plate, something like this. And you're on the phone right then. Yeah. Did they have car phones <laughs> in 1984? <laughs> no, I, you know, were those only for rich people? Maybe rich people did. I, you know, I don't even remember. I don't, think <laughs> but I don't know. I didn't have any of that. So I don't remember. <laughs> I think I got my first cell phone when we were like around 96, 97, and then didn't have one again for a long, long, long time. But yeah, they were almost like these sort of boxes that you put in your I mean they were huge huge (laughs) little mobile things that we have today I mean think about that that's that's a computer essentially I mean how big was the first computer that you saw when I was in college I remember (laughs) passing a building and saying oh what's in that building and they said the computer so I think it was as big as a building And that was back in the day where you had to like punch these cards. There was a name for them. I don't remember, but you would punch cards to make a code and you feed it into the computer. Mm -hmm. I I never saw this thing operate, but it was light years behind what we have now. Yeah. Just crazy. Yeah, really. So the following morning, that's Friday morning. For those of you who really like a detailed timeline. I do. I do. The car, the car was located and tracking dogs actually picked up a scent and followed it 10 blocks before losing the scent. Oh, darn. Later on that day at the barbershop that rejected 36 (laughs) candy bars for $2. Someone read aloud from the news an account of the last woman's murder. And when the friend of the assailant who owned the barbershop, they had been friends for six years, by the way, heard the description of the stolen car, which he saw his friend arrive in and heard that the woman had been selling candy. He got chills and he called the police immediately to tell them about the candy, the car, and the shoes. Well, I'm very glad to hear that he was more concerned about the community and was willing to call. And yeah, because uh, so many times people won't. But maybe he thought, well, God, could be my mother, my sister, my yeah. wife the next time. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it is very hard. I was listening to something about the Unabomber and they were interviewing his brother and he was saying how hard it was even for something of that magnitude to turn his brother in even when he was sure even when it became undeniable well yeah i mean it is very hard but thankfully this guy did call the police so then what happened so that night apparently they had 25 officers out on the streets searching Ooh. for this guy on foot. The detective and his supervisor at the same time went back because remember they had been to his house and questioned him and he gave them a fake story about two ladies in a bar discussing the crimes. <laughs> so they went back to the house and those 25 officers slowly, slowly circled in on the neighborhood and on the house and at about 1 a.m on saturday they rang the doorbell and he opened the door one of the the detective grabbed one arm his supervisor grabbed the other arm and they apprehended him with without a fight with no incident and they told him he was under arrest for the murder of the candy salesperson to which he responded if this goes through i guess it means a life sentence (laughs) 
And in the car, he asked for paper and a pencil to calculate out how many years he would spend in the penitentiary. He was 28. So it would have been, it would have been a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, life sentence. Yeah. Not even 30 years old yet. Just a Mm. babe. Mm. Well, some people say that the brain doesn't form the ability to make logical conclusions and figure out consequences till you're 25. So he was just running a little behind here. A little behind. Yeah. Yeah. Guess that happens. Mm. So I think because we still have a lot more that I'd like to talk about. Yeah. I want to talk about evidence and the trial and the appeals, one of the appeals like we often do and all of those things. So we'll save that, I think, for next week. Doody, doody, doody. <laughs> Thanks for doing that. First episode our co-host couldn't make it for. So that was good. In all the right. meantime, if you guys are liking the show, you can always give us a rating give us a written review. You can subscribe wherever you listen. You can email us if you'd like to tell us your story or anything at all. Our email is murdereryouknow at gmail.com. You can check out our website, themurdererunowpodcast.com. And you can also check us out on Instagram and Facebook. That's Murderer You Know Podcast or at MYK Pod on Facebook. So mom, do you have anything to add? No, I'm 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 looking forward to hearing the next part because you know, also I don't think the the news was as investigative back in in the day. So I'll probably learn some things too. Yeah, I, I will see. It'll be interesting to see how this compares to what you remember. Well, I think at this point, I don't know when they announced that they had caught him. And they probably, you know, in the beginning just said, we caught the guy who killed the candy lady. And and it probably took him a while before they actually came out and charged him with all the murders. Yeah. But I think even just that one was probably enough for everybody to breathe a big sigh of relief. So, uh, yeah. I was, I was probably still running, running to, to my front door from my car. There oh my are always goodness. other lunatics. You can't stop running to your door just because one got arrested. Okay. Okay. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see. You All next righty. Week. Ta-ta. Ta-ta for now. Bye.